Hey, this is Nick here. I wanted to send a quick message to the founders out there. If you're raising your first round of capital and you're not located in the Bay Area, New York City, or Boston, we'd love to connect with you. Newstack leads deals for founders that don't fit the standard Silicon Valley profile and are located in undercapitalized areas. If that describes you, or if you know a startup that fits that description, please send us an email. It's team at newstack.vc. Now here's a word from our partners. This episode of TFR is brought to you by Pacific Western Bank. Pacific Western is the leading provider of venture debt and banking services to startups, growth stage companies, and their investors. Go to pacwest.com to learn more. Welcome to the podcast about investing in startups, where existing investors can learn how to get the best deal possible. And those that have never before invested in startups can learn the keys to success from the venture experts. Your host is Nick Moran, and this is The Full Ratchet. Welcome back to TFR for another cram session. In these special releases, we have aggregated the takeaways and tips from previous episodes. If you'd like a focused refresher on previous topics covered, stay tuned for this cram session. In the next segment, we have the takeaways and tips from customer-centric startup investing down under with Nikki Shavak. Okay, thanks again to Nikki for coming on the program. Let's recap the key takeaways. Key takeaway number one is called founder ideology. The first thing Nikki looks for in a startup is what he calls the two shits. Why does someone care and can they get stuff done? He tries to understand what life story led the founder to solve this problem. Why are they going to put everything into building this company? He observes prior work and life experiences for insights into the elusive product founder fit. And recall that Nikki said that the team slide is not about nice headshots and logos. From his standpoint, the team slide reveals itself in the product. Everything from the design to the core function of the product will show the true capability of the team, much more so than any PowerPoint slide can. And it's not just what they've put into the product, but also what they've left out. Nikki is skeptical of those founders that may be too logical and outcome-focused. Those that say, China is a big market, and if I can only get 1% of the billion-dollar Chinese market, then we'll all be rich. He looks for strong opinions around seemingly small details, and Nikki believes it is those small details that hold the key insights and the magic to why he invests. Key takeaway number two is called Global Focused Narrow Target. Blackboard likes to see global SaaS products that can be located anywhere and can be scaled with marketing as opposed to sales. With SaaS businesses, how do you sell to the worker user rather than selling to the CIO? They look for bottoms-up adoption and engagement models, not the forced top-down sales-driven business models. And he added that sales-driven businesses can sometimes misrepresent the true opportunity for the product. If you have a particularly charming salesperson, they may be effective selling the product to those that otherwise would not have purchased. So this can have the effect of distorting the data and making the business look more scalable than it actually is. And a global customer strategy does not mean a vague and generic customer definition. Nikki advised that startups don't target customer groups that are too broad and heterogeneous. He discussed SMBs and how it's kind of a false category. 
An SMB, by definition, is based on the number of employees a business has. By that definition, Blackbird Ventures would be considered a part of the target market. Instead, Nikki suggests that one has a more fine-tuned definition of the market segmentation, the types of customers being targeted, and the need profiles therein. In this case, he cited the example of dentists. It's much more reasonable for an investor to assess whether early adopter dentists are going to be more representative of the mass market of dentists versus SMB early adopters being representative of all SMBs in the mass market. Okay, and then key takeaway number three is called It's All About Engagement. When asked what key metrics Blackbird looks for, Nikki cited metrics that are much more engagement-focused than acquisition-focused. He'd rather see a small number of customers that are highly engaged and really passionate about the product versus a huge number of customers with only a small percentage that are engaged. They look at net promoter score. In SaaS, they look for upgrade revenue and low churn. And with any business, they assess if the solution is truly addressing the problem. If the customer has X problem, what percentage of the time do they use the product to solve that problem? And he attempts to assess all metrics as a percentage. None are absolute values. During the interview, Nikki summarized the definition of a business, and he defined it as the number of customers that come back again and again. He's seen many businesses that skyrocketed to success with great escalating revenue that ultimately did not work out because they didn't have sticky, happy customers that kept returning. He cited Peter Thiel's book, Zero to One, and the importance of building a small monopoly where one should focus on a small number of people that care very deeply about the product before attempting to get to scale. Crossing the chasm from a few innovators to a large majority is much more realistic with a raving fan base of evangelists leading the charge. Remember Nikki's insight that there is no stronger forward predictor of success than a deeply engaged user that really, really loves the product. Okay, let's wrap up with a tip of the week, and this week's tip is called What Makes SaaS So Special? Many articles are written every week about how to succeed in SaaS, but less often do people write about why SaaS is so special. It's a business model applied to a product type that has become a massive focus area. Venture has not seen a category of startups like this before. Some investors create an entire thesis just focused on software as a service. So rather than spending this week's tip on another top 10 list of how to win in SaaS, instead, let's explore why the category itself is so special. From my standpoint, it all boils down to three simple reasons, proximity to customer, measurables, and value focus. So the first point was proximity to customer. Part of the brilliance of SaaS is that businesses develop a direct relationship with end users. They often sell directly to them and have an ongoing feedback loop with them. While this provides numerous product and versatility advantages, maybe the biggest advantage is in what this eliminates. Proximity to the customer disintermediates traditional channel players. Wholesalers, distributors, resellers, retailers. What intrinsic value do these players provide? None. They reduce margin for the value creators and they increase price for the value consumers. By removing layers upon layers of mouths to feed, 
The only transaction necessary is the one between creators and the customers. Thus, all the value resides with them. Okay, the second point here had to do with the fact that SaaS is measurable. When I think of metrics, I recall Peter Drucker's famous quote, you can't manage what you don't measure. Or you may remember this one from Dwight Eisenhower, plans are nothing, planning is everything. The set of standardized metrics available in SaaS makes the category much easier to assess. The problems are more easily uncovered. Best practices are readily transferable. This gives both the founder and the investor a playbook to work from. It helps each identify the root cause of issues and take actions against them. The forecast itself may be terribly inaccurate, but it drives the right discussions and allows for fast reaction. Okay, and then the third point here on why SaaS is so special is due to the value focus. SaaS businesses typically charge upfront and ongoing. Strong value must exist for customers to pay for the product. And this value must sustain or the customer will select out. With many businesses, the value transacted ends after the initial sale. With SaaS, it's the opposite. The first transaction is the beginning of a long, healthy annuity. This puts pressure on the startup to provide real and increasing value. And as I wrote in a post called The Customer Volume Value Curve, the startup can share in this value as they expand it over time. It's no secret that my strategic focus area is not SaaS. I'm a hardware investor. I hunt for compelling startups developing IoT with a recurring revenue stream. For now, I'll refer to this as IOTR, standing for Internet of Things with Recurring. So why would I knowingly choose something other than SaaS when I'm aware of its massive advantages over other types of businesses? We can talk about the merits of IOTR another time, but fundamentally, this category shares the same three value drivers as SaaS. Proximity, measurement, and value are key strengths for this business model as well, and it's far less overheated than SaaS. Remember the trappings of herd mentality in venture capital. In this industry, it often pays to be the contrarian. Many other investors have a sector specialization, which provides them an advantage during startup evaluation. They should be able to pick better due to their strong knowledge of the sector's success factors. But that sector must also be positioned to outperform other sectors over the investment time horizon to make it worth investing in. Fred Wilson and USV understood this well. They didn't limit themselves to one sector, but rather developed a thesis on network effects, a factor that gives every startup leveraging them an unassailable advantage. So to finish this point, startup investing is not just about great teams with great products in great markets. At the company level, those may be the key factors. But if you zoom out to the industry or category level, one's thesis should present advantages. If you zoom out further, there are macroeconomic factors that come into view. Sector, technology, thematic, and business model specializations can all offer investors an edge. Some short-term, others sustaining. Whatever the case, one shouldn't just have an edge as a picker. They should also be playing a game that's rigged to win. In the sports industry, the most valuable hockey franchise is the New York Rangers, and they're valued at $1.25 billion. The least valuable NFL franchise is the Buffalo Bills, and they're valued at $1.5 billion. 
You need not focus on SaaS or IOTR. But what game are you playing? Why is your category giving every startup within it an edge over the rest? If you can answer these questions, you're way ahead of most. In the next segment, we have the takeaways and tips from Space Tech Investing with David Cowan. Very fun to finally get a chance to go deep on space. Let's recap the key takeaways. Key takeaway number one is called the segments within space. David talked about the subsectors within the space category and which areas VCs have invested in. The first category was aerospace contractors. These are companies that are supplying NASA with completely one-off custom components and systems. The second category includes defense contractors, similar to aerospace, but these contractors serve government's national security. The next category is commercial satellites and constellations. This is the most active area for startups. Hundreds of startups have been founded in the segment over the past three years, and many entrepreneurs are not experienced aerospace people. More often, they are software developers. And a key focus area here is on the data, making this subsector more data science than material science centric. The next category is mining. There is a new sector that's emerging around mining operations with plans to mine the moon and or asteroids. The next sector is commercial tourism and exploration. These companies are focused on taking travelers to space and potentially other planets. The next is satellite subsystems. This includes equipment such as antennas, solar panels, and propulsion. And finally, the last segment is the ecosystem of support services for space operators. This includes companies with ground stations, satellite tracking, collision, and launch. Okay, let's move on to key takeaway number two, which is the death of Space 1.0. Recall David's comments that we've been operating on space technology that was developed for the Apollo program. This tech was designed to be really long-lasting, militarized, redundant satellite equipment. And by the 1990s, satellites were costing billions of dollars, taking 10 years to build, and could weigh many tons. Meanwhile, terrestrial-based telecommunications costs were dropping precipitously, causing the entire commercial satellite industry to collapse. So all the major Space 1.0 companies started filing for bankruptcy, including Teledisic, Iridium, Globalstar, Terrastar, and others. And NASA continued to be defunded by Congress over the years leading up to 2008 when they defunded even further and canceled the successor shuttle program. Then, to further exacerbate the problem, the available space for satellites in geosynchronous orbit became exhausted. There was no longer room to launch satellites with new tech and capability. So ultimately, space had all the ingredients for a market primed for disruption which is just what happened in key takeaway number three, the birth of Space 2.0. With the proliferation of mobile devices, components in the devices increased in capability and dropped in price. And it just so happens that cell phone components are the same as what you'd find in a satellite. There's power management, battery, antenna, radio, accelerometer, and camera. So founders with fresh eyes asked, can we make a satellite out of these cell phone components? And can we put it in low Earth orbit where there's plenty of available space? It was at this time that a physical spec called the CubeSat was created. And Skybox Imaging put up their first satellite in December 2013. Many different teams of entrepreneurs could now leverage a standard for developing space tech. 
Coincidentally, advances in 3D metal printing had allowed companies like SpaceX to develop much better rockets and do it much faster. So while a completely new approach to satellites had emerged with the CubeSat, a completely new way to address launch had emerged with the SpaceX rocket program. And David believes it was the convergence of the CubeSat innovation and launch technology that has caused this renaissance in space today. Which leads well into our tip of the week, and this week's tip is called Vertical Integration and the Space Stack. Despite advances in recent years, the space industry has had its major challenges. Namely, launch remains the biggest challenge. There's the cost of launch, including the payload, the risk that your payload blows up, and the timing of launch. Many have to wait long durations to get their payload into a launch queue. Another challenge has to do with the human biological hazards of space. David thinks that this may be one of the hardest problems to solve. And finally, there's the ideological challenge of the space stack, so to speak. The leader in the sector, SpaceX, has found success by adopting a vertically integrated model. Similar to what he's done with Tesla, Elon aims to build the components, subsystems, systems, integration, and assembly all in-house. And it's this approach that has driven much of their success, allowing them to rethink and redesign rockets from the ground up. But it also can be limiting. David discussed the technology ecosystem required to achieve objectives like interplanetary travel and asteroid and moon mining. These are not easy challenges. And as with any industry, it's unrealistic to think that one company can solve them all. I'd imagine that many tech companies grapple with the choices of vertical integration and ask the question, do we bring things in-house or do we leverage services and or components that allow us to focus on our strengths? It's common for leadership to consider this when building a solution that addresses a specific problem. What's more unique is a company asking themselves this question about an entire sector. And Elon's mission to Mars is much bigger than solving the problem of launch. To illustrate the scope of the mission, we did an entire interview about it with Tim Urban. So, in a way, David believes that Elon's approach is limiting the advancement of Space 2.0. While Elon attempts everything in-house, David roots for technologists anywhere with both his voice and his wallet. It is reasonable to believe that, regardless of what Elon does, creators will continue creating, building solutions to both narrow and broad problems. And regardless of how this plays out, I couldn't be more excited to see how the space stack evolves and what the frontier holds. At this point, if you're a VC, you've heard of Carta. You've probably even accepted securities from a portfolio company on the platform. It feels like every new company is using Carta, and there's already 16,000 VC-backed companies on the platform. They also offer tools and services for VCs like fund administration. Carta has an army of fund accountants delivering high-quality service and dedicated teams of engineers constantly improving the functionality of their user-friendly investor platform with in-app quarterly reporting, real-time fund metrics, LP portals, and more. It's also easy to switch from an existing fund administrator or to augment your in-house team with their service. Learn more about their services at carta.com forward slash investors. And this episode of TFR is brought to you by Pacific Western Bank. 
Pacific Western specializes in providing financial services to startups, growth stage companies, and their investors, helping to navigate financial obstacles by providing access to funds and expertise. Pacific Western's customized products and team of venture banking specialists provides a banking experience designed specifically with startups and VCs in mind. If you run a tech company or if you invest in tech companies, it's strongly advisable that you build a relationship with the folks at Pacific Western. Go to PacWest.com to learn more. In the next segment, we have the takeaways and tips from sector and niche focus funds with Jordan Knopf. Awesome chat there with Jordan. Let's recap the key takeaways. Key takeaway number one is called types of specialties. The first type of specialty that Jordan mentioned was corporates. These are venture funds created within large organizations with a focus on taking equity positions with early stage companies that may pose a threat to their existing P&Ls or create opportunities to expand and grow their business. Specialty group number two was vertical or sector. These included funds that invest exclusively in a sector or vertical that could be real estate, insurance, healthcare, biotech, or any other industry sector. The third category was niche-focused funds. These are funds with a horizontal strategy that offer some strategic value add. They may be bridging a gap or filling a need that hasn't existed across the funding landscape. The example here that Jordan cited was Bullpen, where they're providing that pre-A financing need. In some cases, you will find firms specializing based on geography, stage, or strategy. And the key distinguishing element has to do with the value that they provide. Investors and founders alike should ask, is the firm investing in this niche because the GP can drive unique value? Okay, key takeaway number two is called benefits and drawbacks of niche-focused funds. First on the benefits, Jordan talked about how this allows investors to gain access to deals that may be highly competitive. If you have a focus area, you can provide strategic value that other generalist investors cannot. This can help a small firm earn an allocation in some of the most competitive deals. The next point here is that a tighter mandate can reduce a lot of the deal flow noise. This creates much better efficiencies over generalist investors. The third point was that there is tremendous opportunity for knowledge sharing between niche-focused portcos. Some of the best value exchange happens between founders operating businesses with distinct parallels. The next thing that Jordan cited were the benefits of information asymmetry. And he gave the example of an LP base that can provide strategic value and insight during startup evaluation. Also, in some cases, the LPs may be potential strategic acquirers. And finally, on benefits, we discussed messaging in developing a brand. When an investor has a distinct mandate, they can message clearly to both founders and to upstream or downstream investors. This creates a brand association for the firm, allowing for much more targeted partnerships. And then we transition to drawbacks. Uh, Jordan talked about a lack of diversification. When one invests in the same area over and over again, they will not have the same degree of diversification as generalist investors. There's also the risk of conflicting yourself out. So I've heard many investors reflect on having to pass on investments in great opportunities because the timing was wrong, or they believe there's another solution that will be created to better address the problem. Imagine being an early investor in MySpace and having to pass on Facebook. The next point on drawbacks is that a lack of noise that we cited as an advantage 
can also result in a lack of opportunities. One could miss out on the biggest and best deal that comes their way because it was not in their focus area. Next, Jordan discussed how sectors can get hot and cold. When sectors get overheated, competition for allocations and valuations increase, while when sectors cool, there can be a lack of institutional LP capital interested in investing. And Jordan's final point on drawbacks related to the lack of track record that is often the case with niche-focused funds. Because most specialized funds are new micro-VCs, that also typically means that there's little to no track record for the GP. It could also be a thesis on a new area that hasn't fully matured. So LPs have to take a risk on not only a new fund manager, but also one that's in an emerging area. And this can present too much uncertainty for them to get comfortable. And Jordan reminded us that a firm need not restrict itself too much, preventing high potential opportunistic investments. In his example, if Travis Kalanick came to him with a new startup, regardless of the circumstances, Tusk would not hesitate to invest. So even the best niche-focused funds build in some flexibility for situations outside of their mandate. Okay, and key takeaway number three is suggestions for sectors with significant regulatory exposure. Jordan said that regulation always lacks innovation. And in light of that, he had a number of wise points to consider with regards to regulatory, including study the regulatory risks that exist in your vertical focus area. Risks can present opportunities if one is knowledgeable and prepared for those risks, but it's not advised to be investing in a sector without an awareness of the regulatory climate. His next point here was to get involved early. Jordan talked about the importance of working with regulatory officials to establish guidelines for areas that aren't currently addressed by the regs. When both sides understand each other's needs, he found that strong progress can be made toward a common goal. The regulators do not exist just to maintain the status quo. The next point Jordan mentioned was that many of the regulatory battles are fought at the state and local level. While the perception is that most issues are federal, from Jordan's experience, he finds that much of the time these issues are played out in smaller jurisdictions. Next, we talked about some of the industries that Jordan thinks are really interesting from a regulatory standpoint. These included the insurance industry, the cannabis industry, and sectors with 1099 workforce exposure. And finally, where there is significant regulatory exposure, it may be best to partner with another investor or an agency that has real expertise in managing the reg environment. Okay, let's wrap up with a tip of the week, and this week's tip is called What's Your Gateway Drug? In today's interview, Jordan talked about how there are two kinds of startups, those that are solving a real problem and those that are addressing something that customers are totally unaware of and in the process changing their behavior. I wanted to use this week's tip to attempt to connect these two concepts and illustrate a pattern that I've observed with many founders. And this pattern has revealed itself to me in the form of two different startup types. Without question, every pitch I come across can be categorized into one of these two groups. First is type one, where the startup says, we're solving a narrow problem for a specific customer. And then there's type two, where the startup says, we're building a platform that will change the way customers behave. There are problems with each of these two types. In the case of startup type one, solving a narrow problem, often the problem is too narrow and the market is too small. So even if their solution is incredible, the opportunity size doesn't justify investment. In the case of startup two, the market sizes are typically massive, but they can't get adoption. In the pursuit of boiling the ocean, 
and creating a whole ecosystem, they've confused and overwhelmed users. In the absence of addressing a real problem, there is no business. To provide a quick example of each, let's consider smart watches. On one hand, you have the fitness GPS-enabled smartwatch. They perform a targeted function and solve a real problem. I'd imagine the majority of the customer base is runners, and they're using the device to track splits and distance. This would fall into type one, a real business with real value in a niche market. On the other side of the spectrum, you have the Apple Watch. This product attempted to recreate all features of the mobile device in watch form. Apple took a new use case and went from zero to 100 on day one. The jury is out on success or failure of the Apple Watch, but clearly it has vastly underperformed their expectations. So while it has massive capability, consumers don't quite understand the value. And the behavioral changes required are too significant to be comfortable. Recall that the iPhone did not launch with thousands of apps and immense capability. It was quite literally a mobile phone with beautiful industrial design. The user experience was unrivaled, resulting in fast adoption. Apple iOS and the platform that we know today was a gradual development. Consumers learned how to use the enhanced capability app by app, version by version. The best pitches I see have a type 1 mandate and a type 2 vision. They're solving a real problem with a narrow customer base like type 1 startups. But they're doing this as a gateway drug, so to speak. The initial solution is a means to a much bigger opportunity. The gateway drug gets customers in the door using the product. This allows the business to grow with the customer and become a type 2 startup. If I were to have made a suggestion to Apple, it would have been to roll out the watch as they did the phone. Find the single most visceral problem to address with the watch and create a product that is far better than anything else for that use case. Then, over time, they can become a platform with many additional features just as the iPhone did. So today, I facetiously recommend to find that gateway drug. Use it to build something much bigger. Founders that do will have a real business from day one and may have the opportunity to build a household name. That will conclude this cram session installment. Jump on the TFR website at fullratchet.net today to sign up for the newsletter and receive all the info on special content, episodes, and the best articles written on startups every week. Until next time, over-prepare, choose carefully, and invest confidently. We'll see you next time.